Well, we're in week two this week of our series on But God, uh, of the series of looking at how God brings hope and life in the midst of, of very difficult circumstances in, in, in Scripture. And so each week we're taking, looking at a different story or an example in Scripture of people who are at the point of hopelessness or dealing with pain or loss or struggling, and we're seeing how God presences himself right in the midst of it, where right in the midst of, of those hard times or difficulty, those two most powerful words that follow in the text that say dot, 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 but God. God comes into that situation and, and brings life and brings hope right into it. And each week when possible, I, I'm going to ask that we have someone that comes and does our reading for the day, but also shares a testimony connected to whatever the topic is of that day. And so today we're going to be looking specifically at the area of God functioning in the midst of our dysfunction, that even the midst of families' dysfunctions, but God's stories are, are always there as God is moving in the midst of that. And so this morning I have asked for Lisa Fallon to come and do our reading and also to share a little bit of her own but God story of God meeting her in that place. So thank you, Lisa. Good morning. Can you guys hear me? All right. The reading first is from Genesis 31, 4 through 9. So Jacob called Rachel and Leah out to the field where he was watching his flock. He said to them, I have noticed that your father's attitude toward me has changed, but the God of my father has been with me. You know how hard I have worked for your father, but he has cheated me, changing my wages ten times. But God has not allowed him to do me any harm. For he said, the speckled animals will be your wages. The whole flock began to produce speckled young. And when he changed his mind and said, the striped animals will be your wages, the whole flock produced striped young. In this way, God has taken your father's animals and given them to me. So, for those of you who know me, this could be a disaster, so we're going to just do our best here. Um, (laughs) um, So, my family was fairly typical. Uh, As a young girl, I had my dad, my mom, and my older sister. We lived in a uh, reasonably nice neighborhood, had good friends, lots of kids around. Um, We were super involved with our church, and our family was close by. Um, But despite how it all looked, um, there was just an element of fear that always was a part of our house. Um, I can remember, you know, being outside, playing with friends um, in the neighborhood, um, reading with my mom, um, but that was one of the sources of biggest fears. My mom had um, severe Crohn's disease, which left her um, usually bed-bound and pretty fragile. She had uh, multiple times where she was hospitalized, and she would... um, When she would go to the hospital, there was always the fear she wouldn't come home. She'd have blockages in her intestine that can go very poorly, um, but, uh, but worse than the fear of having my mom die, sadly enough, was the fear of being left alone with our father. Um, every day when we were growing up, um, we would start listening for my dad's car in the neighborhood about 5.30, and that was our cue to stop whatever we were doing and go to our rooms um, and basically be silent. Um, my mom, when she was able, would kind of test out the waters to see Um, whether it was okay to come out and greet him or if we should just stay put and quiet until dinner was served. Um, Sadly, my place at the dinner table was directly across from him, Um, and so every every day he would basically just stare at me and in absolute terror. I typically tended to set my cup right on the end of my plate, which would cause milk to, you know, cover the table which gave my dad the opportunity to go into a rage. Um, I will say he never did beat us. Um, I got slapped, called names, screamed at, um, cursed at, basically any of those other things um, were part of my early history. Um, Unfortunately, that created some uh, behavioral, I'll get it, so point of note. If I'm going to cry, I'll just take a drink. But it started creating some um, ways of relating for my sister and I. Um, My sister became defiant, um, volatile, um, super stubborn. And I, on the other hand, became cautious, quiet, um, and worked very hard to be good at all times. The peacemaker tried to make everything okay for everyone. Thankfully, my dad 
eventually started getting control of his anger through the help of our church. Um, but unfortunately, the patterns were pretty well cast for the rest of the family. Um, but through a crazy set of circumstances, my parents became emergency foster parents. Um, and when I was in seventh grade, a girl um, who was a month younger than me came to live with us. She had a difficult background as well. She had been abandoned by her drug-addicted mom when she was five and passed around through the foster system, um, abused, unwanted, and then finally ended up with us. Um, she lived with us for almost two years, and my parents had started the adoption process for her. Um, but then a family from our church um, came into the picture and were wanting to adopt her, and so she moved in with them. But through that time, she stayed pretty close to our family. Um, and so after a little while, that relationship between that couple and my Ange um, fell apart, and um, she eventually came back to us, and we adopted her three days before her 18th birthday, so she was legally adopted. Um, but during that whole time, a boy from her church our church was great. Um, a boy from our church um, came to live with us as well. Um, he also had a pretty tragic story, um, just neglected um, by his family. And uh, he broke his spine um, in an accident. And his family, instead of canceling a month-long vacation, decided to just leave him behind and um, asked my parents if he could come and stay with us for the time when they were gone, which he did. My parents, of course, said yes. And um, after spending that month with him, <clears throat> when his parents came back, my, my parents asked if they could keep him. And his parents did not hesitate and said yes. And um, so I got a brother. Um, so needless to say, you can imagine that in, uh, in that family, um, I had uh, three siblings who needed constant focus, attention, and intervention. Um, and I was, I was the good girl. I was kind of the back burner child. Um, didn't need a whole lot of attention or time. Um, so for me, being able to intervene and make everything okay for everyone else kind of gave me a sense of purpose in my family. Um, kind of gave me a place, because, yeah. So without even realizing it, I had kind of become the fix-it girl. I'm uh, in regardless of what the situation was, could be arguments between my parents and siblings, could be between my siblings, um, my parents. Um, it didn't matter. I had a tendency to um, step in and make it okay. Um, and it became the norm for my family as well as the expectation. And I was actually pretty good at it. Um, but it was during my freshman year of college, just turned 19, when it all came apart. Um, I actually remember the night pretty clearly. Um, I was studying in my room, and my older sister called, and she was she was very upset. Um, my younger sister had gotten pregnant with my ex, with my older sister's ex fiance. Um, they they those two had a huge rivalry their entire lives. My my two sisters. Um, so I listened to her scream and cry and tried to console her. Um, and as soon as I got off the phone with her, my mom was on the phone. Back in the days when, you know, you just took one phone call at a time. Um, <laughs> so as soon as I hung up with her, um, my mom called, and she was just sobbing and at a loss. Hung up with her, and my younger sister called, furious at the ridiculousness of my older sister. Um, but it, what shocked me was just her next statement was, Lisa, this is a mess. What are you going to do to fix it? And I was just like, oh, how do I fix this? I have no idea. Water. <laughs> so I went down, excuse me, gotta get there. I went down to <laughs> I went down to the lounge at the end of our, my floor and my door. I just remember praying. I 
I was sobbing because I had failed. I just remember asking God how to fix it. Who? I was not pretty sorry. Um, anyways, but I, I remember his answer probably because I was listening for it for the first time in a long time. Um, that it, essentially I had put myself in the place of God and become the savior for my family. Instead of trusting God with them, I tried to fix it all myself. All I had succeeded in doing was delaying the excuse me, inevitable consequences for each of their choices. I was humbled by God. Thanks for your patience, guys. Uh, but God began the extremely difficult task of extricating me from fixing all of their problems. My family, as you can imagine, had allowed me to take that blame for so long that they did not take that well. And it took years of me deliberately praying, loving, and encouraging them, and refusing to take responsibility for their choices, for that instinct to go away in me, mostly. Um, by revealing my sin to take his place in others' lives, God changed how I saw my role in relating to others. This has been foundational in my ability to function as a counselor. I'm constantly reminded that my words and actions are pointless if not grounded in his word. I wish I could tell you that when I stepped out, um, that it transformed um, my family's lives because they all turned to God, but it's, that's not the truth. My dad died a couple years later from brain cancer, but he had genuinely begun to seek the Lord. My older sister flip-flopped in her faith, depending on what worked for her in the moment, but when she ultimately developed brain cancer as well, um, she leaned in, which I'm thankful for. And my other two siblings don't acknowledge God at all. But God has granted me the ability to love them and speak truth. And surrender them to his faithful hands. So that's what I choose. Thank you so much. Thank you. Lisa, thank you for your courage and being willing to share that with us. I so appreciate that. Wow. Um, families are dysfunctional, but God. Uh, that's, that's the title of this morning's message. And uh, Lisa, again, thank you for your, your courage to be able to share that and, and being vulnerable and real with us and what's going on. And the reality is so often our stories aren't necessarily victories saying on the other side of things, everything's all right. Oftentimes it's that daily but God story that allows us to put one foot in front of the other. And Lisa is an incredible counselor. I mean, there's so many, anyone that's been part of this church for a while, our women have probably met with her, hung out with her, and, and lives are transformed as a result of, of that. So thank you. Um, this morning, we'll be looking at just one of the, the stories of very highly dysfunctional people in Scripture. There's a lot of them. It's very easy to take a pick because there are endless options. It's pretty much all of them. And uh, just an opening, a story I wanted to start with, and that was that there was a young daughter who asked her mom a question. And, and she said, Mommy, uh, where did human beings come from? And mom says, oh, well, you see, God, in the beginning, he, out of an overflow of his love for mankind, or, or his overflow of his love for each other, he created mankind, Adam and Eve, and he placed them in a garden. 
And he placed them in his image because of his deep love that he wanted to pour into them. And then Adam and Eve had kids, and they had kids, and they had kids. And eventually, there's us. That's where we came from, out of God's overwhelming love to be able to pour it into creation. And she's like, wow, that's awesome. And then she goes to her dad, and she goes, hey, daddy, where did people come from? What do you think? And her dad said, well, you see, a long time ago, there was this explosion, and then this explosion turned into a goo, and this goo turned into like tadpoles, and those tadpoles turned into fish, and the fish grew arms and legs, and they walked out of the water, and, and eventually they evolved into monkeys, and, and then we come from the monkeys. So we're kind of accidents evolved from walking fish and monkeys. That's where we come from. And she's like, wow, that's confusing. So she goes back to her mom, and she says, mommy, so I'm confused. You say that God created out of this incredible love for mankind, and, and we're made in God's image, and came from Adam and Eve. Dad says that we came as an accident from goo and fish. Which one is it? And she says, oh, sweetie, it's so easy to understand. She says, you see, your father was describing his side of the family. <laughs> I'm talking about my side of the family, right? So Sometimes in families, one side's a little more dysfunctional than the other, right? We're all dysfunctional, and some just a little more fun um, in, in some ways. And so, and in fact, this past week, uh, I, was, I saw there was this, this crazy obituary that was placed in, this is a real obituary, I'm just going to read a couple words from it, that was placed in Florida, uh, of course, um, uh, the Florida Times Union newspaper. And, uh, and it, 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 again, this is real, just came out a couple days ago, and it, it's uh, some highlights from it, or lowlights. This is, this is very real and very painful. The guy that wrote it said he did it as a way of healing in the process. But he says, Lawrence Sr. passed away on June 27th, living a long life, much longer than he deserved. And it goes on to describe many of the things. He said he was a, his love was abundant when it came to himself, but for his children it did not exist. Lawrence Sr.'s hobbies included abusing his first wife and children. He loved to start projects but never followed through on them. Lawrence possesses no redeeming qualities for his children. Lawrence passing proves that evil does eventually die. This is in his obituary. Lawrence can be remembered for being a father to many and a dad to none. Wow. I hope it gave the 58-year-old son the healing that he was looking for. Um, <laughs> But that's painful. But the truth is, everyone comes from a dysfunctional family. There's no exceptions to that. There aren't any other kinds of families outside of dysfunctional families. There's just degrees of dysfunction. No one is perfect. The Bible tells us all have sinned. There is no one who is holy. Everyone's kids probably need therapy at some point. And not to minimize the significance of serious abuse cases like Lawrence's or, or others that are obviously very, very significant, but the Bible is full of God using really, really dysfunctional people. And, and there's a reason that God uses broken, dysfunctional people. One, he loves using people like myself and like most of you because he gets the glory. Because clearly on our own, all we would be able to do is fall on our face. And so he gets the glory. But the real primary reason is God uses dysfunctional people is he has no choice. It's the only kind of people that exist, right? There's, there's not really the option of using non-dysfunctional people because we don't exist. What exists are broken people who are marred by sin and broken in this world. World. The Bible says all have sinned, so that we are all broken. There is no one holy, not one. And so since Adam, every human being has been dysfunctional. I come from a dysfunctional family. I am the father of a dysfunctional family. And, and today we're going to look at one very, very dysfunctional family in the life of Jacob and his family as he begins to move out and work with, with, with Laban. So Jacob, we're looking at this morning, his name meant deceiver or one who grasps at another's heel. And the reason he's given that name is back in the day, they often named people very literally based upon what it was. And so he was called that because he grasped at his brother's, his twin brother's heel as he came out of the womb. So they called him one who grasps at his brother's heel, which means deceiver. It was amazing their, their naming back then. Could you imagine today if we were named by our brokenness? Like, hi, this is luster. Hi, this is pornographer. Here is gossiper, right? Here is thief. I mean, that's kind of the way it is. They, every time they say Jacob's name, they're saying, here is deceiver is kind of how it's known. His brother was given the great name of Harry. Literally, that's his name, Harry. It, it, that's Hebrew for Esau because he was really hairy, so they gave him that amazing name of Harry, named Esau. And so each of these guys, as they came into the world, they came into a very dysfunctional home. And lying, cheating, stealing, deceiving were the norm for, for this, the, Jacob's family. And so Isaac, who was Jacob's father, was born in a very dysfunctional family as well, coming from his father being Abraham. And sometimes we think of those as the heroes of the faith, but I'm telling you, there's not many heroes in the Bible outside of Jesus, because these were really broken people. And Isaac, he was known as a manly man. He liked manly things, and he wanted that for his sons. But Jacob wasn't that. He had Esau, his son, who was related much better to Esau, and he favored him and gave him all his attention. 
I mean, and, and he liked, Esau liked to do the manly things. He liked to hunt and fish and kill things with his bare hands and, and do all that kind of fun stuff. And, and Esau was covered in hair. I mean, he was so hairy that it's crazy. When, when his mom tried to deceive Jacob to be able to, or got Jacob to go deceive his brother and to stake his birthright, in order for Jacob, who had smooth skin, kind of like me, before I, I can't grow a beard to save my life, and uh, he, he, he had to put goat skin on his arm and on the back of his neck because that would trick his dad, was blind to think, that it was really Esau. I mean, how hairy do you have to be that touching a goat makes you think, oh, that's my son? I mean, that's literally how hairy he was, that touching a goat made him think, oh, clearly that's Esau. I mean, I don't know what his wife would have thought about it. I guess it's just always sleeping with a winter blanket. I mean, it's just a weird thing. He was that hairy that that affirmed it to him. But so, so, so Esau was this manly man. He had a, a 10 a.m. shadow, not, not a 5 p.m. one. He, was, he, he probably loved to play football and, and ice hockey. He, he, when he worked out of the gym, he wouldn't touch the circuit weights. He would only use the free weights like a man, right? Because he was, he was a, a manly man. He drank his coffee black. I think he drove a Dodge Challenger Hellcat from what I read somewhere. And uh, he listened to lots of Metallica. That was, that was Esau. Uh, on the other hand, Jacob was a mama's boy. That's really no other way to put it. He hung out with his mom, was favored by his mom, was coddled by his mom. He couldn't grow facial hair or any other hair, it seems. Um, he, he preferred to cook. Uh, from what other descriptions I've read and other sources, I was told he had a man bun, um, that he preferred painting in, in, instead of sports, that he wore his graphic t-shirts ironically like a hipster was kind of his style, um, that he had a gluten and, dairy gluten and dairy intolerance, so he was kind of a soy milk, pumpkin spice latte kind of guy, uh, from, from my understanding. Like me, he drove a, a light green Subaru Forester, uh, and, and he had the, the greatest showman soundtrack on repeat on Spotify, was, uh, was Jacob's style, right? So... Now, I might have added a couple of details there that weren't in the text, but uh, you, you could find them on your own. But th the first few are definitely accurate. So we had this mama's boy and we had this manly man, and they hated each other because this family was so dysfunctional. Jacob's grandfather was Abraham, and Abraham lied and played favorites with his kids regularly, creating really funky situations, literally giving his wife on multiple occasions away to other foreign people, lying to them, saying, oh, she's just my sister. Feel free to take her from me because he was so scared uh, of what might happen to him. And then Isaac literally did the exact same thing. His son went, and in fact, not just did the same thing, he went to the son of the person who was the former leader of that area that Abraham had lied to and offered his wife to. And then Isaac offers his wife to that dude's next person in command. Like, it's just the exact same thing as repeating itself. And Isaac played favorites, which screwed up his kids. So is it any surprise then what Jacob does when it comes to him? Jacob lies. He's known as the deceiver. He gives his youngest son, Joseph, the super fancy coat and tells everyone, Joseph's my favorite. No surprise then, what do Joseph's brothers try and do? They try to kill him because there's so much dysfunction going on in his family. It's a really messed up childhood of constantly fighting for attention of a, of a father who favors Esau, a mother who favors Jacob, and a mother who even pits the brothers against each other. It's his mother that tries to get him to deceive his brother and take his birthright. I mean, this is so screwed up. Finally, Jacob flees away from the family and he gets away from this messed up family and goes to see his uncle far away. And he's like, finally, I can get some freedom and get away from this brokenness. And eventually he finds Laban, his uncle, and he finds his, his daughter, Rachel, whom he wants to marry. And I'm sure he's so grateful to get away from all this dysfunction. And he agrees to work for seven years for Laban in the field to earn this, Rachel's uh, hand in marriage. And so he does. And there's this great verse in 2920 where it says, So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel, but his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. Oh, so romantic, such a pure, true love. And then, but the next verse might cause you to question that a little bit because it's probably not so much true love as it is true lust. As 29.21 says, Finally the time came after seven years for him to marry her. He says to his father-in-law, I have fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. Now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. Um, okay, things not to say to your father-in-law when you're asking for a hand in marriage. Um, this is a messed up family. I don't know how else to put it. So then the deceiver, Jacob, is out deceived by Laban, her father. And on the wedding night, Jacob is likely drunk, and Laban swaps out his daughters. And instead of giving him Rachel, he gives her Leah, the one who was not known for being beautiful, who was older, who was unmarriable, and he wanted her to get married off, so he gives her in the middle of the night. Now, how messed up do you have to be as a dad to give away your daughter that no one wants and force her upon some guy that actually doesn't want to marry her? I mean, this is, this is some really, really twisted stuff that even the deceiver Jacob never would have thought in a million years would have happened. He wakes up, realizes he slept with the wrong woman, doesn't know what's going on, freaks out, and then goes back to the father and agrees to work for another seven years to get Rachel's hand in marriage. And so this goes on. I mean, it's just so messed up after years of abuse. And then in Genesis 31, Jacob says this. 
He says, you know how hard I've worked for your father, he says to Rachel, but he has cheated me, changing my wages 10 times. In those 14 years that he was working for him, the payment wasn't just his daughter, it was their payment, but 10 times the father, or Laban, lowered his payment in this time and kept cheating him again and again and again, and he keeps working for him. So Jacob's own father doesn't like him. He couldn't imagine that he dreamed when he finally leaves and gets away from the abusive, dysfunctional family at home, they would actually move into a place that was even more dysfunctional than his home life. His wife's father marries his daughter he doesn't want off to him, and he keeps getting more twisted because after this, Jacob then acquires two extra concubines whom his wife's force upon him, though he didn't seem to resist too hard. Right, Because of the baby-making Olympics that happened in his family where everyone's just trying to get more kids and so they keep trying to pop them out as fast as he can. And on top of this, I mean, it gets so twisted that Rachel at one point even prostitutes Jacob out to Leah for an exchange for some aphrodisiac fruit called mandrakes. I mean, this has literally happened. One wife, prostitute, sells a night of sex with her husband to the other one, says, if you go and give me this special fruit that's supposedly an aphrodisiac. I mean, this is some sick and twisted stuff in this family and this is what is their dorm that they live in. If you ever thought it was messed up that Jacob's kids, Joseph's brothers, try and kill him and do all this damage and everything else you're doing, like, wow, so messed up. Man, they're kind of mean to that Jacob guy. It's because you don't understand the story. This family is twisted. It is messed up. It's so dysfunctional. In fact, Jacob's own kids at one point horrifically wipe out an entire town that they had made an alliance with because they deceitfully get them to agree to join them as as a family and get them all to circumcise all their men in one night, and that night they go and they wipe out the entire town. I mean, it's just deceit after deceit after deceit after deceit. Where, Where do they get those ideas? It's Jacob. I mean, Jacob's angry, but it's just the fruit of what he's done, which is the fruit of what his father did. Jacob favors his youngest above the rest in ways that make them want to kill Joseph. In fact, next week we're going to look at that story. When we look at, the next week's topic is, is when people harm us but God. We're looking at the story of, of, of God working in, Jacob's li- or in, in Joseph's life. So Jacob is deceived by Laban many times, and not only does it take 14 years to get the daughters, but then it's another seven or six years in order to get the flocks and try and get money, in which case Laban constantly takes away his wealth and steals from him. And at this point in the story, you might think, wow, this is really messed up what happens to Jacob. But the further you go, I mean, if there was any semblance of being a good guy, you could think you could feel bad for him. But by this point in the story, you're also thinking, wow, it couldn't happen to a nicer guy to be treated this way because he was really messed up. So he grew up in this twisted home, coddled by his mom, taught to deceive, looked down upon by his father. He steals his brother's birthright rather than just give the guy a bowl of soup. I mean, this is twisted. And just a side point here, if you're a parent... Please don't play favorites with your kids. The Bible shows really, really messed up consequences for doing that. You know, Steve used to say that, uh, I love Pastor Steve, he says that in marriage, it's not about becoming happy, but it's about God making you holy. And the same is true in parenting, right? Especially the more that those kids aren't like us. I know, I mean, my dream is that my boys would play football and basketball. I so badly want to play one-on-one with my kids. But at this point, they're looking far more interested in drawing and painting and other stuff than they do in sports. And I, I'm, I'm, although I, I hope they play some, I just have to learn that I need to get into their boat. I have to learn to, to join them on their journey, not have them join me in mine. And it's an incredible experience of doing that because the more unlike our kids we are, the more opportunity there is for God to grow us and and shaping our hearts to love them more and experiencing more of his heart for us. But just as parents, please do not try to play favorites in any way or favor those that are more like you because the consequences are so evident here in Scripture. But Jacob couldn't get away from the cycle of dysfunction. It just kept following it everywhere he went. In chapter 31, verse 4, he says this. It says, So Jacob called Rachel and Leah out to the field where he was watching his flock. He said to them, I've noticed that your father's attitude toward me has changed, but the God of my father has been with me. He says again, you know how hard I have worked for your father, but he has cheated me, changing my wages 10 times. But God has not allowed him to do me any harm. Now that's quite an amazing statement. God has not allowed him to do me any harm because for 20 years he's been cheated. He's lost 20 years of his life dealing with all this dysfunction, being cheated and hurt and harmed in so many ways. And yet he says it here multiple times, but God has been with me. He says, your father has cheated me, but God has been with me. Your father has cheated me, but God has not allowed me to be harmed. I would call stealing 20 years of your life as harm. I mean, that that would count as harm to me. Ruining your life for 20 years, taking all your money, taking your wife. I mean, to me, that was harm. But in his perspective, he's able to see God right in the midst of it. And he can see that God has been present the entire time in the midst of the dysfunction. God has not allowed harm to come to me. He is right there with me, and he is carrying me through. 
And a few years later, after Jacob flees, he's in the middle of the night, he leaves with his family, he finally runs away, Laban catches up to him, and again, another story where Rachel is deceiving this time, and she had stole her father's gods, that he had idols that she had stolen, and she was coming, and Jacob was, or Laban was looking for him, so she sits him under her mat, she lays on top of it and says she's on her period, lying again, so no one will find them. I mean, it's just twisted stuff. And at the end of that, Jacob says to Laban, he says, for 20 years I have been with you caring for your flocks. You made me pay for every stolen animal, whether it was taken in broad daylight or the dark of night. I worked for you through the scorching heat of the day, through the cold and sleepless nights. Yes, for 20 years I slaved in your house. I worked for, I worked for 14 years earning your two daughters and then six more for your flock. And you changed my wages 10 times. In fact, if the God of my father had not been on my side, the God of Abraham or the fearsome God of Isaac, you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen your abuse and my hard work. He says, I have been a slave to you for all these years, but God has seen all that's happened. And then as he prepares to go back to see his brother Esau and and make amends, God meets him in the wilderness in the form of a man. And as God meets with him, he he wrestles with Jacob and this man. And and as he's wrestling with them, in the midst of this fight, God touches his hip, so his hip goes out of socket and he has to walk with a limp. And in the process, this is so cool, God gives Jacob a new name. It says here in verse 28 to 32, he says, Your name will no longer be Jacob. The man told him, From now on you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. So check this. No longer is Jacob's name the stealing deceiver. But now it's one who wrestles with God, one who struggles with God, one who engages with God. He's given a whole new identity. And I love this because his identity is no longer that he is a broken deceiver. That is no longer who Jacob is. God has now said that his dysfunctional family will no longer define him. Do you get that? His dysfunctional family, the brokenness of the past, is no longer the thing that will define who Jacob is. But instead, he says, he is now the one who engages with God, the one who struggles with God, the one, and this is seen as a title of honor, that now this is who Jacob is. He is the one who is wrestling and struggling with God. He is no longer defined by the brokenness of his past and his parents. Jacob's life has not been an easy one. He's definitely not a saint or a hero. But God has given him a new identity, not based on his standing in his family, but on his standing with God. In fact, the author of Hebrews, years later, calls him one of the great men of faith. Because in God's kingdom, we are not just a product of our past. Our identity and our value, they don't just come from our dysfunction or our family of origin, though it does deeply shape us. Our identity and our value come from God, that we are his children, and we can break free from any patterns of dysfunction or abuse. We are not fated to repeat this, the sins of our parents and our grandparents, but we can actually set healthy boundaries in our lives with our parents and family and friends and others. I mean, some days we'll do a whole, some we'll do a whole series on boundaries, but just as a brief, if you haven't yet read this book called Boundaries by, uh, by Dr. Henry Cloud, I don't know if that's going up there or not, but I encourage you to read it. It's, it's one of the greatest books ever written. Uh, if you're, if you're, you should read it before you start adulting, to be honest. And if you're too late for that, if you've already started adulting, whether you're 20 or 40 or 60, um, and you're just starting, uh, you should still read it, and you'll just realize you probably should have read it 30 years ago, and, and talking about boundaries and setting healthy boundaries in families and other things. But Christ has adopted us into a new family, is what we see here. He's given us a new identity, and too often we as Christians, we, accept, we don't accept the full significance of that. Too many Christians, we get fatalistic and saying, you know, I come from a dysfunctional family. It's, it's who I am. This is my lot in life. This is my brokenness. And well, yes, we do come from a dysfunctional family, but Christ has adopted us into a new family. He's given us a new name and a new identity to experience life in him. And it begins now, but it continues to be experienced as fully into eternity. Jesus did not come just to make bad people good. He didn't come just to get sinners into heaven. Jesus came to make dead people alive, to give us life in him. Ephesians 2 says it this way in verse 1. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in your brokenness. We were by nature deserving of wrath, verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace you have been saved. We were dead, and Christ made us alive. And we are no longer slaves to our past, 
We're not slaves to our parents' sins. We're not slaves to our poor choices. Even though they clearly impact us and they continue to to, to, to reverberate throughout, throughout the rest of our lives oftentimes. But we are not bound to repeat the sins of the past. So many people may quote Genesis or Exodus 34 and talk about, you know, the, the, the curses and being the generational sins going on to the third and the fourth generation. But for somehow, I've heard that recorded, repeated by so many Christians before of like generational sins. But you do not realize that Christ came to break the curse. It says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We are not under any power of generational sins. We have that curse broken in Christ. We do not have to live out of those sins from the past. Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. We can lean into Christ and he will help us to walk out of it. Or Galatians 4.7 that says, You are no longer a slave, but God's own child. That is now our identity. We are God's children. We are no longer bound to the past, bound to the sins and the brokenness of those who have come before us. In fact, even in the Old Testament, people were not bound to follow that brokenness that was perpetuated before them. There's this crazy book called Kings in the Bible of of story after story of horrific kings and the terrible things they did. And mixed in with there is a few ones that weren't so bad and even a couple good ones. And it's crazy, some of the stories here, because each of the good kings was the son of a horrific, not just a bad king, but an evil, horrifically evil king. The greatest example of that being Josiah. Josiah is known as the most righteous king who ever lived, greater than David in so many ways. He is the greatest king, yet he was the son of Ammon, who was the son of the most evil king that ever existed in Israel named Manasseh, who was so evil that he actually brought in child sacrifice right into the temple and had people sacrificing their babies to Molech, made the whole nation worship idols and do the most horrific of practices imaginable. That was Manasseh, the most evil king that ever existed, and his grandson Josiah turned it all over. In one generation, he takes it and completely reverses every single thing Manasseh did, turns the nation back to God, turns them away from idolatry, and even goes back further than what Manasseh did. He didn't just reverse Manasseh's, he reversed generations before him in one generation, and that was without Christ. That was just by the power of God as he was doing it. He knew it wasn't there. That was even before Christ. Then you have Hezekiah, probably the second most faithful king. He was the son of Ahaz, who was the second most evil king after Manasseh. Same thing, reversed all the courses that Ahaz had done in that time. Or you get Asa, another great king, was the son of Abijah, another very evil king. And we see this over again in Scripture. They broke the cycles of the bondage of of, of dysfunctional family, did not hold on to them. They were able to walk out of those cycles. And I want to share my favorite story of this happening. It's not from Scripture, but it's from life, and it has to do with my father. Now, thank you for those who have been praying for my father. Just, uh, it, it, it continues to be rough. He, he's stable, but that's not necessarily a good thing. Hey, Dad, I know they're watching right now. Love you, Dad and Mom. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, things aren't, aren't going well right now. We, we need to see a turnaround here fast. But my father is one of my heroes. And for many reasons, but my father was horrifically abused as a kid. In fact, he had no memory prior to the age of 13 because his brain, as a gift to him, just shut down his entire childhood because there was just so much abuse. He used to just be a punching bag for his dad and have to just lay on his mom and protect his mom as he just took all the abuses of an alcoholic father. And one time he had to wrestle a gun away from his dad on Christmas morning so he didn't shoot himself. And I mean, there's just so much abuse and so much pain. And when he was a father, he he was genuinely scared that, that he would hurt me in growing up. And so one of the ways that he loved me was he said that he, he, he chose to kind of avoid me because he had no examples of a good father. And so the best way he knew how to love me was to kind of avoid me, let my mother raise me, and he worked as hard as he could to make money to, so that he would have, he would, I wouldn't have the danger of being hurt by him as a father. And the thing is, when he got into his late 30s and 40s, he went through a ton of counseling, years of counseling. And in that time, he began to unlock all these memories that happened to him when he was growing up and these horrific things that had happened. And as a result of that, he began to walk through it. And he began, I remember when I was 14, him coming in and just apologizing and telling me all the stuff that had gone on as he had just had all these memories unlocked from his childhood. And since then, our relationship just blossomed. I can say to this day, my father is my best friend. But, but here's the thing. My dad is not perfect. There's a lot of brokenness. But he is one of the most courageous men I know because he broke the cycle. Right? He gave his life to Jesus. He assumed his, his new identity and with God's help and with the help of a therapist and some good meds, he, t- he began to walk out his own God's, but God's story. And I can now love my boys 
and be a father in ways my father never could because of my father breaking the generational cycles and breaking those bondages that he felt to his family, what was going on, of generations of people hurting one another. My father gave me the most amazing possible gift of himself, but also a life that I didn't have to deal with those things that he dealt with. And he followed the path of Josiah and Jacob and Hezekiah and Asa and turning to Jesus and breaking those dysfunctional patterns. And I want to emphasize this as I share about this, because Jesus met my dad when, when he was just a teenager. He walked with Jesus for decades. In fact, my father became a pastor when he was just 18 years old while he was going to Bible school. Yet it wasn't until his late 30s that he actually began to walk with a, a really good therapist and a counselor and began to kind of unlocking some of those things that happened. And he got on some good meds to help the journey. And the truth is that my dad knew Jesus for a very long time. But the Lord used a few years of therapy and a professional to walk with him to really unlock that pathway for him. I'm not saying that's for everyone's journey. But my goodness, Jesus is our healer and our savior. Amen for that. But often Jesus uses good therapists and oftentimes meds that walk with it. Because Jesus plus therapy and sometimes meds is an incredible combination of healing. I just want to emphasize that. That my dad was a Christian for years and years and years. And it wasn't until he saw a good therapist was he finally able to unlock those memories, and we were able to walk together and become a family and really be able to walk closely to one another. My dad was not a slave to his past. He kept fighting and holding on to Jesus and taking positive steps and became one of the best counselors I know, a man of grace and faithfulness and gentleness. But it was a constant choice for him to choose to keep walking and holding on to God as each of those things continued to come up in his life. Another story, there is a, a little boy that was visiting his grandparents and he had just gotten a new slingshot that he was terrible at, and he was out in the woods, and he couldn't hit a tree, couldn't hit a broadside of a barn, and so he was walking around. As he was walking back to the backyard of his grandmother, he, he sees her pet duck there by, out near the back of the house, and he aims at it from a while away, knowing he'll never hit, and just takes aim for fun, and oops, smacks it right in the head and kills it. He feels terrible, and he panics. In a moment of panic, he went and grabbed the duck. He hid it in the wood pile so that no one would find it, and he turns around, and he sees his sister Sally sitting there watching him, just smiling, not saying anything. They go back in the house, and, uh, and after lunch, Grandma says, Hey, Sally, will you help me to clean up the dishes? And she says, Well, actually, Johnny told me that he wanted to do that. Didn't you, Johnny? <laughs> Remember the duck, she said. Right? And he goes, Okay. And he, he went and did that. And the, that afternoon, uh, the grandfather said, Hey, uh, do you kids, do you guys want to go fishing with me? And uh, the grandma says, Actually, uh, I need Sally to help me prepare dinner tonight. And Sally goes, Well, actually, Johnny told me he wanted to help prepare dinner. Didn't you, Johnny? He's like, ah. And so he stayed and, and, and helped prepare dinner. And the next few days went on and, uh, of Johnny doing all of his chores and all of Sally's chores until finally Johnny comes to his grandma and he's just confessed and he says, I am so sorry. A few days ago, I killed your pet duck and I hit it and I didn't want to be honest about it. I'm so sorry. You're just in tears. I'm so sorry. I did it. I'm tired. I'm so sorry. I did it. And she says, Johnny, I know. I was standing at the window. I saw the whole thing. She says, but I love you and I forgave you. She says, what I wanted to know, though, is how long are you going to let Sally make you her slave? How long are you going to choose that and choose to be the slave of Sally? You see, like Jacob, we oftentimes allow our sins of our parents and the brokenness of our past to make us slaves. That our identity is, is dysfunctional and broken becomes our identity. We assume the identity of a broken or deceiver or, or, or whatever it is, and it defines us in so many ways. But Christ has given us a new identity. He's given us a new name. He's broken the curse, and he's brought us from death to life. We no longer have to live as slaves to our dysfunction or to our sin because God is able to function right in the midst of our dysfunction, and he's able to lead us out of it. And sometimes it's a miraculous turnaround in a moment where we're set free in a moment of the things of the past become a distant memory. But sometimes that'd be like a meth addict who just supernaturally receives a healing and never desire again. A few years ago, I mean, I worked with a lot of, of meth addicts and, and, and gangsters that were struggling in those lifetimes and or that lifestyle. And one of the guys I was working with for a couple of years uh, struggled with meth all the time and stealing all the rest of it. And, and one day he accepted Christ, asked him into his life. And in that day, the entire addiction was broken just like that. Absolute miracle. Medical miracle. No desire, no sweats, no withdrawals whatsoever. The moment he accepts it, all desire for drugs completely gone, completely left his system. And that's awesome, and we celebrate that. We, we praise God for that, but there was a major problem that happened as a result of that, you see, because then every guy, the other guy that we were dealing with who was dealing with that and was coming to Christ, that was dealing with relapses, he was like, dude, you guys just got to pray more. Just have more faith. Like, God just heals it when you pray. He's telling everyone, just pray, 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 and God will take it away, because he was that whatever, that 1% or that 2% that got the miracle. And we praise God for those miracles. 
because they're awesome. We praise God for the miraculous healings, for the but God story that reshapes everything in a moment, and that's awesome. But we also have to praise God for the slow road of recovery that takes a lifetime where it's a daily but God testimony, not a one-off five years ago, but God in my life, but today is but God, tomorrow's but God, this afternoon's but God, as I keep holding on to him in the midst of my struggle and my addiction, as I keep going back to porn or to alcohol or whatever it is, those desires, the gossip, whatever those things are, it's a daily moment by moment, but God testimony of God being present to me in the midst of my pain. Jacob was given this new name in this... But remember, he did walk with a limp for the rest of his life. And even after this, he fell back into many of those patterns again and again. He played massive favorites with his sons. He didn't just wrestle with God and win, but he wrestled again and again, kept going back to this old identity. Many times he'd go back into being a slave to those old patterns. And each time it hurt him and those around him. But each time God delivered him. God keeps functioning in the midst of our dysfunction. We must open our eyes to see him, his hand at work, and that he's working in the midst of our dysfunction, that God is right there. Whether it's caused by a family of origins or by our own sins, Jesus meets us right where we're at. It's not just an up and to the right experience of everything getting better and better and better, but it's a daily but God experience of God meeting us right there in the midst of the pain. And as followers of Christ, though we've all come from dysfunction, dysfunction, we are not called to live there in the midst of it. We are called to increasingly conform to the image of Christ, to increasingly experience his freedom. And it's one of the reasons we come here to church is we don't just live in our dysfunction or don't ignore it or pretend it doesn't exist, but we grow together. We call it out in one another. We repent of it. We learn new patterns of behavior. We learn to rewire the neural pathways in our brains. We learn new ways to love. We come broken, but we love each other too much to let each other stay there. And that's why we need to be in community. We need to be in family and and joining community groups to be part of it. And I don't know who needs to hear this part. I recognize that some battles are a bit harder than others. I want to state this just so clearly. And that some have those miraculous experiences and healing, and others it's a small steps with lifetimes of, of setbacks. But I remind us, there's some of us who have deep, deep dysfunction that have come from so much pain and hurting. And we feel that we're not just limping, but we're barely functioning at all. And maybe there's suicidal thoughts. Maybe there's darkness that seems to always be overcrowding. And we're wondering if it's worth the journey. And please hear me when I say this. If you're watching online at any point, please hear this. In God's kingdom, nothing is wasted. You may not see the fruit of your battles. You may not see the fruit of the labors on every side, this side of eternity of everything you're doing. You may not see the impact of all that you've done, of all the hard work, the endless fighting to stay alive, the endless battle to get out of bed and just put pants on or to feed your kids or to go to work, but it's not wasted. Some of you are like spiritual pioneers. You've been given hard ground to till and, and it's filled with weeds and, and hard soil and you may not have the, see the harvest in this lifetime, but your efforts to hold on to Jesus and grow with him, the battle to stay alive and provide a Christ-centered home for your kids and your children, or if, if you're not married, to love well those around you, it is not wasted. You may look around and all you see is a barren wasteland and wondering what all your fighting is for, if it's worth it or if it's not. But it's not wasted. God is in the redemption business. And you're pioneering the land of a beautiful paradise for the future, where future generations are going to get to see its beauty and its wonder. So keep fighting. Whoever needs to see that, keep wrestling, keep limping, and keep holding on to God, even if you don't see it. I think of one of my own missionary heroes, of Adoniram Judson. He spent 40 years in Burma, and he had a life that was just marked by tragedy. He lost his first two wives when he was there, and he remarried even a third time. He lost six of his 13 children on the field. He went home twice in 40 years. He had times of despair, imprisonment, and torture, and persecution, and rampant sickness. He saw some fruit, but very, very little. Yet his work started the Baptist movement in Myanmar that led to over 4,000 churches being planted and 2 million believers today, none of which he saw while he was alive. And some of you, when you're fighting, you are the spiritual pioneers, and you won't see the fruit of what you're doing. But his effort wasn't wasted, and neither is yours. Amen? I want to take communion now. As we take communion, we come back to Jesus, and we just say, Jesus, thank you that on the night that you died, you were at the Last Supper, and you broke the bread, and you gave it to us. He said, this is my body that is broken for you. And Jesus, you said that you, your body was broken for our brokenness. Your life was given so that we could have life. And, and so we take this bread that is here, Lord, 
and we take it as a reminder of your sacrifice for us, that you gave your life for us so that we could have life today. Your body is broken so that you could cover our brokenness, that you could function in the midst of our dysfunction. So let's take this bread. And then Jesus took the wine. He said, this is my blood that is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And each time you take, remember my blood that was shed for you. And so again, Jesus, we say, thank you for your blood and your sacrifice. That as we take this life, this blood, Lord, and your life is given for us, it means that we now receive life in you. We are not what we used to be. We are not just the product of our past. But Jesus, we take this and we claim, Lord, your new life for us, our new identity, not as slaves, but as children of God. Thank you, Jesus. As the worship team comes forward, I just want to encourage you today, whether it's for the first time or for the hundredth time, I want you to just proclaim to the Lord, Lord, I want to surrender to you again. I don't want to be a slave to my dysfunction. I don't want the brokenness of my family to continue to order my steps. But Jesus, I surrender to you. I want to be your child. If there's any here that are saying, you know, this doesn't really apply to me. I'm actually doing pretty well. A couple things. One, it probably does apply to you. Um, I know so many people, especially men, who think, yeah, I'm doing great. No, I'm not impacted by that stuff. But the reality is your family is deeply impacted. Your kids are impacted. Those around you are impacted. You're just running from it. And you actually need to address those things and to take it to the Lord. People are suffering and you just don't acknowledge it. And so it's that. Or, or maybe you really are in a great space and that's awesome. But the thing is we are a body and when one part is hurting, the whole body is hurting. And so just encourage you and as you pray through this, just say, Lord, what does it mean for me to reach out to those who are hurting around me? To encourage them, to come alongside them, to pray for them, maybe to help them get some therapy or to share a, a message with them. And so if you're struggling right now with this and you've been struggling with this reality, I'd encourage you right now just to, as we enter to worship, just to say, Lord, I give my life to you again, Lord. I surrender to you, Lord. Help me to claim, take, stake the claim that you've given us, that our life is in you, that you are our identity. So Jesus, we just come to you now and say, Lord, help us, Father, to, to hand things back over to you. Wherever it is, whatever we're walking through, Jesus, we give it over to you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for the gift that you've given us.